Well, beginning today and continuing through whenever I'm done, <laughs> we're going to say the next several weeks, uh, we were going to learn uh, from what was just read and then continuing through the end of chapter six about what God has to say about our homes. And uh, for a lot of us, this is maybe some tough things to get through. Now, I know most of us would like to go straight to the children, obey your parents, but we'll talk about parents first, okay? I know you want to get there, especially if they're sitting next to you. Um, just let me say that this may cause some discomfort, and that is okay. It's totally okay. That's what the Word of God does. It cuts to our heart and to our soul. It cuts us open and then heals us. That's what it does. Uh, these sermons will most definitely reveal some dark spots within your marriage or your parenting relationships, but let me assure you that no matter how dark you feel like the day is today, that the word of God is always a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Amen? These uh, topics that I'm going to be talking about the next probably eight weeks in these couple of chapters um, are really difficult for us to receive and then to act on, not only because uh, we're prideful and we're selfish and we don't truly want to do what God wants us to do all the time, but because culture around us says this is absolute foolishness. It's foolish, and this is not what people should be doing. So if you are challenged by what you hear over the next seven, eight, nine, you know, 17 weeks, um, that is a good thing. It is a good thing to be challenged. You do not have the perfect relationship. You are making uh, problems for your relationship. We all are. Just know it's not the person sitting next to you or the person who's not here today. It's also you. So... Um, and that's a struggle for us, so I want you to, whenever you hear the Word of God read and you hear a sermon, sometimes we say, man, I wish this person were, what, here. Yeah. And um, that could be truthful. I mean, that's not wrong. But I would encourage you to say, what is God saying to me, right? What, am I, what is my responsibility in this? Now, learning a, how to uh, have a healthier home is is sometimes really hard to do, let's face it. I mean, we love learning new things. We just don't want to learn any new things about this. We love new hobbies. We love to new, learn new things at our job or our work. But when it comes to the most personal aspects of our life, we really tend to put up a wall. We don't let any new teaching come in. So it is okay um, if you realize you need to correct some of your attitudes and actions against your spouse or your children or your bond servant, if anybody has a few of those. I don't know. We'll get to that in a little bit. I don't have any. Uh, well, technically I have five. But um, <laughs> it is okay for you to realize that your attitudes and your actions and the way that you've treated or thought about them has been wrong. That, that would be a good thing. Because God heals the broken sinner. Amen? That's what the gospel is all about. is allowing God's word to penetrate our heart and our mind to make us New, okay? So everyone has some responsibility in this. And I will say, if you're not married or if you do not have children, you cannot check out and not show up for eight weeks. Because if you don't show up, we will look very light on Sunday morning. And that would be weird. And number two, um, this section is not just for those who are married or have children because you have a responsibility as someone who is single or waiting for that person God is bringing into your life to encourage marriages and parenting. You know, if you, if you meet with a guy and he becomes your friend and he's married, well, your job is to encourage him to be the best husband he can be, whether you are a husband or not. 
So it's not just for people who are married or people who have children. This is an all-encompassing church thing that all of us should care about. <laughs> and the first topic we're going to talk about is Matt Grove. <laughs> Let me share three points. <laughs> all right, so here's the big, big main idea. So the title of the series is going to be The Christian Home, okay? Let me give you the big main idea slide. That's going to probably stay up for the remainder of the service. I'm not going to outline the service in slides like I normally do. It is this. The Christian home should reflect the gospel. The Christian home is called to reflect the gospel. That means what is true about your life in Christ, your salvation, your forgiveness, your new life, should also show itself in your home life. It shouldn't be just a personal thing you do. It should work its way out, and it should be seen and tasted and experienced and felt and heard in the home. The gospel, when I say that, that is, of course, what the Bible calls the good news. The good news is gospel. If you have good news for somebody, you can say, I have gospel for you. Good news is that God sent his son into the world to seek and save those who are lost. That's what he did. That's what God did. And the gospel has within it this, these events that are really critical to understand it. The gospel is the message of how the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is our means for salvation. In short, that's what that means. The gospel is about the death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension of Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. And though that statement right there has the power to renew your heart and your home, and those, that truth right there gives us how we need to apply changing our heart and our home. That statement is full of truth that has the power to transform our home. Okay, so think of it like this. In his new life, sorry, in his life when he lived on earth, Jesus perfectly obeyed God the Father, right? So the sins that we just confessed, Jesus did not have to do that. That was the whole idea. He was the son of God, fully God, fully man. He needed to put on flesh so he could sacrifice himself for flesh, but he was fully God. It's a mystery. The Bible calls it a mystery, but that's what it is. Mary was a virgin. She had a baby. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. It was God in the flesh. That's who was born on Christmas morning. And yes, that's coming very soon. Some of you actually know the days to when Christmas is coming, but we're not going to talk about that right now. So in his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed God the Father. He was without sin. In his death, Jesus paid for the sins of the world. And then he satisfied God's wrath towards sin. God was angry at sin. He's still angry at sin. But he's not angry at those who have faith and trust in Christ because Jesus took all of that wrath for us. He paid our penalty. When he rose from the dead, after they buried him in a tomb, thought he was dead, he came back to life. He walked around for a long time, had some meals with a few people, showed himself to people. He was not a ghost. He was physically alive. In his resurrection, he proved to be the very savior he said he was. God proved him to be the son of God. God vindicated him. All the people that thought he was crazy, all the people that wanted to kill him because they thought they were messing up their religious movements, well, they were proved wrong. Because God raised him from the dead. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. That means in his resurrection, Jesus has defeated our greatest enemy, eternal death. That which most of us are very scared of and run from every day. Now in his ascension, when he went up, all right, so Jesus rose from the dead, and then he goes up into the fa- uh, to be next to the Father, he goes up to the place where he came from, and he's right now at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for those who love him, for Christians. He's telling God, yep, 
that one's mine, and that one's mine, and so is he, and so is she. She's covered. He's covered. That's what he's doing right now. He's interceding for us on our behalf. So when we think about the Christian home, I want you to tell you those four truths have the power to transform your life. Those four truths. Now, there's a lot in there. And what I'm going to do today is not even get into verses 22 through 24 and 25 and 26. All the guys are like, let's get into verse 22. That sounds like a great one. Wives submit, right? And the women are like, let's talk about husbands loving their wives. And now most of us are like, let's talk about children obeying their parents. We're not going to get into that in the moment. What I'm going to do is outline this section and give you sort of an overview um, because that will be helpful for us as we think through these next eight weeks. We need a proper place to put all this stuff. And that's when I say the gospel is the driving message. The truth about Jesus Christ works itself out in these verses. This is how you apply it. Submission and love and sacrifice and obedience is how you apply the truth about what Jesus Christ has done. Okay, so now there is a problem. We do have a problem when we receive a word like this. Uh, We have a problem even as Christians because we often internalize the gospel. Meaning, I'm saved, I'm good. Don't bother me, right? I'm saved, I know God loves me, I have received Christ by faith, but um, all that mess around me, like I don't really need to do anything about that, I'm good. I have my way out of God's judgment. I am forgiven, A lot of times, especially in our culture, we think it's all about the individual person. That's what we do with the gospel. The gospel stops at us, and that's a problem. That's a problem we all face. The gospel stops at us. Nobody else needs to recognize it or realize it or learn anything about what it's doing in my life. Right? So it's kind of like this. You attend church, but you don't speak kindly to your spouse. That would be evidence that the gospel has stopped with you, and it's not working itself out in your life. Uh, You may give some money to the church thinking you're doing what God wants you to do, but your eyes are wandering and dreaming about people you should not be looking at or dreaming about. You serve your neighbor, those who live next to you, those who live across the street, those who you want to get to know, but your children are left to figure life out on their own. So a lot of times we take pieces of the gospel and we go and do them, And we neglect the very mission that's around us each and every day. So if this is you, and this should be all of us at some point in our lives, let's just be honest. Christ died to save sinners in which I am the worst, okay? So you're in the right place. If this is you, your life is following this trajectory of pride. It's pride that's getting in the way. That's our problem. Our problem from having, you know, the most healthy home as possible is pride. That is the number one thing that gets in between all of it, right? Pride stops us from trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So instead of trusting what he has done for us, we default to trusting into our intellect or our ideas or our gifts or even our morality. You actually, most of us get stuck trusting in the good person that we are and we lose sight that we're not that great and Jesus is much better. When pride takes center stage in your life, the gospel then becomes obsolete. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is a gift. We didn't earn it. We can't even purchase it. It's given to us by God, and it's received by us with faith and belief. That's, all. That's it. You ever talk to somebody and say, yeah, this is the Christian worldview. This is what the Christian believes. And they go, is that it? Faith and belief. There's got to be something more. 
I've heard that conversation more times than I can count. Well, what else are you supposed to do? Believe and have faith. All the other stuff comes later. Salvation is grace. It's free. It's a gift. But when pride gets in the way, all that is obsolete. And therefore, um, instead of grace, instead of you realizing that grace in your life and receiving it and being thankful for it, you usually respond with condemnation to others, mainly them in your home. Instead of forgiveness, there's shame. Instead of compassion, there's condemnation. Instead of love, there's hate or animosity. So when you take the gospel out of the center of your home, everything starts to break down. Sure, you still may be saved. That's not my job to judge that. But the point is, if the gospel is not going out of you and infecting everyone around you, mainly your husbands, your wives, your children, that's a huge warning sign that pride has crept into your life, right? So we want to battle that, right? There's an easy way to determine whether or not pride is the fuel, right, in your home. I keep saying right, sorry. Here's an easy way to determine whether pride is a fuel in your home. Let's talk about trying to identify pride as the number one driver of your culture in your home. Okay, here it is. If you argue more, if you forgive less, if you're growing apart, if joy is non-existent, pride is in the center of your home, not the gospel. Because pride will not allow you to confess or admit and seek forgiveness from your wife or your husband or your children. You can point out a pretty prideful father very quick when after they screw it up royally with their kids for the 10th time that day, they can't look that child in the eye and say, I was wrong. That is not what God has called daddy to be. That is not what a daddy should be. Will you forgive me? Wives, encourage your husbands in this way. Pride always affirms that you are not the problem and everyone else is. In our culture, we call it gaslighting. Right? We make the victim the reason why the person even did that to him in the first place. You ever said that? Well, I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't made me mad. I wouldn't have spoken to you that way if you hadn't done those things. Friends, that's not the way you are to interact. It's not the way the gospel calls us to interact. So in those moments, what you'd rather say is, I'm sorry for what I've done. Will you forgive me? And let God deal with the rest. And bring that up later. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Pride will always go before destruction, which means destruction always comes after pride. If your heart is in a place of pride this morning, you can bet everything that you own that destruction is on its way. Let that be a warning. You can bet everything you have that destruction is on its way. But there's forgiveness. There's a different way to live. Christ has set us free. Amen? You don't have to be there. Pride actually doesn't have any power over you. Jesus defeated Satan. He defeated sin. Pride doesn't have any power over you. That's why believing this stuff, stuff is so important. Right? Pride makes you forget what God has done for you. You have forgotten how sinful you were before God. And you think you're actually really good. You have forgotten that you did not earn his new life in Christ. You actually think you've earned it. You've forgotten these life-giving words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Jesus provides what you need, not yourself. 
pride stunts the growth of gospel culture in the home, which is why these verses are so important for us to understand. I mean, if your salvation is not seen, heard, tasted, experienced, or felt in your home, we have to start from the, from the bottom. We have to figure out what we're doing wrong. We have to figure out how we can lean more into what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now listen, if your home is in a bad place, you have come to the right place. Let me say that. Everyone is welcome. No one is perfect. You're sitting next to people who are just as nervous as looking at me as you are. That's the way it goes. I see all the eyes, okay? I just have that advantage. And that's okay. It's okay to not be perfect because you're not. And if you put that expectation upon yourself, you'll even be burdened far more than you are today. There is hope. God is in the business of making all things new, and so there's hope for your home no matter how dark it is. Okay, so that's my introduction. Now, for the rest of the time, I want to highlight three characteristics of the Christian home, and these three characteristics are woven through all these verses. These three characteristics should be evident in all the Christians' homes. That's what Paul tells us, okay? So that's what we're spending the rest of our time doing. He highlights a few things, and then as the weeks go on, I'm going to get much deeper into each one of these characteristics. Verse by verse, we're going to go through this, and we're going to understand how very practically we can do these things in our own homes, okay? But today is just an overview. It's an introduction, all right? So number one, the word is submission. Submission. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, let the fun begin, all right? Hey, I, I want to hear what this guy's got to say, right? I know, I know I'm actually pretty nervous about it. I was going to be like, we don't need to talk about that one. I think it'd be wise to, def- um, to understand um, submission by defining it first. So the word used for submit, the word there Paul uses, um, it's talking about subjecting yourself under or to align yourself under, like military ranks, right? In the military, you have all these ranks of headship and of power and of duty and responsibility, and they're there for a reason, right? Our military operates very well the way it does is because it is set up in that way. That is what Paul is asking the wife to do, to align yourself under the husband. Now, let me add this as well. All of life is one of submission, whether you're a male or a female. I mean, it was just one verse previous that Paul says what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what he tells the church. So all of life is one of submission. I am to submit myself to you. You are to submit myself, yourself to me as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we are to do. We're to, um, we are to fight over how much we can honor one another and how much love and joy we can share with one another. So really, that's all of life, right? So this verse gets a lot of bad press because it just gets abused all the time, and we recognize that. But all of life is one of submission. And what Paul is going to do after he says, submit to yourselves to one another, he's going to say, Here's how that looks in the home. So then that's when he says, wives to husbands and so on, okay? So all of life is one of submission. So Christians are to submit to one another. They are not to think themselves higher than anybody else. Instead, they are to humble themselves by aligning themselves under one another. And then he moves on to explain how this should look in the home. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. A gospel culture in your home that can be pointed out, experienced, is marked. I mean, if, if I were to go into your home, I'd be able to taste it and see it and experience it if the wife is submissive to her own husband. That should be evident in the home. 
Now, I don't want to spend all the time on this one verse, although we could, because there's plenty more, but I cannot leave you without explaining a little bit of what Paul is trying to get at. So I'm going to do that, but in the coming weeks, we're going to get much deeper, right? So let me tell you what submission is not, because I think that's helpful. We can say what submission is, and I kind of just gave you that, aligning yourself under, uh, coming in under rank in a military form. But let me tell you what it's not. Submission is not obedience. So Paul says, submit to your husbands. He doesn't say, obey your husbands. And we know there's a different word there, because later Paul says, children, obey your parents. Bondservants, obey your masters. So it's not the same. If it were all the same, he would use the word all, the, all that entire time. Submission is not obedience. Paul does not encourage wives to simply just obey their husbands, but rather submit. It's far more powerful. Submission is not, this is what this means now, guys. Now you can figure this out here for yourself. Submission is not fetching whatever your husband wants. Just because she's not doing that doesn't mean she's not submitting. That just means you have far too many requests that she's willing to fulfill. Submission is not shutting up and keeping your opinion to yourself. It's not submission. Submission is not obeying sinful requests of your husband. Submission is not you watching the ship sink and doing nothing about it. We get very confused with submission. Submission is none of those things. Submission is then honoring your husband's position as the man and the husband. It's honoring that position. It's giving thanks that that's how God created the world, because that's how he did it. Adam was created first, and Eve was created to help Adam in his mission. Submission is encouraging your husband's leadership in the home. It is encouraging it. A home where this is present will always have a wife who is encouraging her husband to be that much better the next day. She will encourage that. She will not condemn him in the things that he's failed at. She will point it out, be truthful in love, and encourage him the next minute, the next hour, the next day. Submission is dedicating your life to God's created order. Also, submission is for the wife, if you notice that. I hope you understood that. Submission is not for the husband. Submission is not for the husband. Paul gives this directive to the wife, which means this is what God desires for you to do, not for you to do for your husband. The husband clearly benefits. It may be the most beneficial thing in his life if you submit to him as his wife. Someone could give me a million dollars, a brand new house, all the shiny things of the world, and that means nothing that pales in comparison to a wife who encourages me, who submits to God's created order, who wants to make me the best husband I can be. None of that compares. This is for the wife. It's not for the husband. A husband will certainly benefit from submission, but Paul gave this, gives this command to wives for her spiritual benefit. Does that make sense? This is for you. You're not obeying and submitting for your husband's sake. You're submitting to your husband because God desires you to understand what he wants for you. You know, it's some kind of evil when people use the word of God as a source of power to manipulate people and others. And the reason that I have to tread so lightly and try to speak just a little bit slower than I do. I'm not sick. I'm trying not to act weird. I'm just trying to be very clear 
because this has been so abused in our culture. Some of you have witnessed it. Some of you have been on the abusive end of it. Okay? And I want to be very careful with what I'm telling you and what I'm not telling you, which is in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack this just that much more. But you need to know and you need to be able to call it out and you need to be honest with it. When someone uses the word of God for abuse and manipulation, you call it out and you condemn it because that's not what God wrote this book for. It's not at all what he wrote it for. So I want, to under, I want you to show you where this submission is rooted now, okay? Why does God tell the wives to do this? Well, the perfect picture of submission is Jesus the Son submits to God the Father. God the Holy Spirit submits to Jesus the Son. And we all submit to God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Like the perfect picture of submission is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's why our Trinitarian God, our three in one, is unlike anything else. There is no other religion that has a three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one essence, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. The, it's all through the pages of the Bible. We didn't make it up. That's what the Bible says. That is the perfect picture of submission. And when you realize what God asked the Son to do and what the Son actually was obedient to and what the Spirit does on behalf of Jesus Christ, you see how beautiful it is. And what does all that mean? All of that, when they submitted to one another, we received the benefit of grace and our salvation. Does that make sense? Without that submission... Without Jesus obeying God, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, we are still condemned in our sins. So submission is a healthy and beautiful thing. But of course, we live in a dark world where men abuse women and then quote verses like this one in order to justify their actions. It's not right. So let me tell you why this is a bright spot, even though it feels very heavy and very dark right now. Let me tell you why this is a very good direction from Paul. Let me tell you why this is a benefit to your home. I'll read a brief, um, I'm going to read a, a, a brief paragraph from a guy who wrote about ancient history, specifically around the city of Ephesus where, these, where Paul is writing these, you know, they're receiving, the people who received this letter. He says, a man named William Barclay wrote this, the Jews had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks to God that he had not made him a Gentile, which is a non-Jew, or a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, women, women, woman, women, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed. The position was worse in the Greek world. The Greek way of life made companionship between men and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run the home to care for his legitimate children, legitimate children, but he found his pleasure in companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct, and fidelity, faithfulness, was completely non-existent. In Rome, Paul's day, the matter was more worse. Rome was tragic. It's not too much to say that while the atmosphere of the ancient world was adulterous, the marriage bond was on its way out to a complete breakdown in our world. Wives and daughters were considered chattel, no different than cattle, And it's against this dark backdrop that Paul comes in with this bright light of the gospel. So we get a little bit narcissistic because we think we're more educated and we're more wise. Remember, we're not different. We just have cell phones. That's it. People have not changed. We just have technology. And a lot of times we read the Bible and say, I don't like that. That's 
abusive. That's not right. Let me tell you, in Paul's day when he was writing it, this was a breath of fresh air. This was a breath of fresh air. Because in the ancient world, I think all of us would go, don't put me there. I am so happy I was born in the century I was born in. Submission has always meant to be a blessing. First, rooted in creation because Eve was created for Adam. And second, expressed in the fullness how we realized how then our church or Christians submit to Jesus, our King. To the world, submission is about power. To the church, it's about trust. We trust our creator to know that he was doing the right thing all along. We don't need to look at him sideways when he tells us to do something that we don't understand. All right, I'm going to be done with that one. So I do understand that I have not completely satisfied your appetite to know exactly how this is supposed to look in your home. That is coming, all right? That's going to be in the future. And in fact, if you're involved in a connect group, we're going to be working that out in our connect group conversations. I hope you have fun with that, okay? (laughs) I'm attending one, not hosting one. All right, anyway, let me add the first point. Um, I I want to actually, final point about submission. I didn't say this. Whether you're new to Christianity or not, new to opening the Bible or not, been a Christian for a long time, been a Christian for a day, whatever. It is clear throughout the teaching of Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament, and in fact, and for the Bible for that matter, God affirms the dignity of women. Okay? It's always humankind that screws it all up. It's never God. Nowhere in this book are women less than. We have done that to our culture, not God. And I need that to be very, very clear. Okay? God has not elevated men above women, nor women above men. The wife does not walk behind the husband. The husband does not walk behind the wife. They walk side by side. Equal created image bearers of God. And so it should be in your home, all right? So a gospel-centered home will have within it a wife who submits to her own husband and a husband now, the transition, who loves his wife. The second word is love. So a gospel-centered home will have submission and will be marked by love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, the Christian home is characterized by love because the Christian life is characterized by the love of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been given. We love God because he first loved us. Therefore, we love one another because God loved us. Husbands are called to love their wives. And if you look at it, the women get one verse, guys get like 17. So there's a lot of work to be done. Men, your wife is not property or an add-on or an upgrade to your so-called life. She is a daughter of God. She is a follower of King Jesus. She is a helpmate in this life. She is your support when the walls are crumbling. She is your sanity when you become insane. She is your comfort in time of unrest. She is your peace in the storm. And hear me on this, she is your standard of beauty. Whoever your wife is and whatever she looks like, that's what you're into. That's it, and it stops there. You know what my standard of beauty is? You know what kind of women I love the most? Let me tell you. Women who are 5'7 with brown hair named Sherry Gilfillan who live in my house. (laughs) That's who I love the most. Men, your wife is your standard of beauty. There is no other. She's it. We are called to love our wives. Love is patient. Love is kind. How many times have we heard this quoted at a marriage? 
Let's start practicing it. Men are to be patient. Let's just put men in there. Paul didn't put it in there. I'll put it in there. Men, love is patient and kind towards your wife. Men, love does not envy or boast towards your wife. Men, love is not arrogant or rude towards your wife. Men, love does not insist on its own way when dealing with your wife. Men, love is not irritable or resentful. Men, love does not rejoice at the wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Husbands, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Men, love your wives. The Christian home is characterized by submission and love. Number three, you're like, you didn't talk about the men longer than the women. I know. I just had to speak slower on the first point because I was nervous. Um, We're going to get into men. You don't worry, okay? The Christian home is characterized by submission, love, and one more, sacrifice. All of these verses, that's basically what these verses are characterized by, right? So when Paul says, when he starts addressing this in half of chapter five, almost all the way through chapter six, your home should have within it Submission, love, sacrifice, right? Paul continues. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who he, who, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Sacrifice is part of the home. Women will sacrifice to submit. They will sacrifice time and energy They will sacrifice emotional energy. They will sacrifice their own desires to come under the headship of their husband and serve their family. Husbands will sacrifice to love their wives. Those desires he used to have to be out and about doing whatever he wanted are gone because his focus is now on the home. He sacrifices the money he makes and gives it all to the family so they can survive. He sacrifices the downtime Downtime, he wants. Don't ever say that to me face to face. Don't tell me you need to go home and decompress. Go home and love your wives. That's what decompresses me, I can tell you that. You will sacrifice your time and your emotional energy and your mental energy to nourish your wives. Men, go to bed tired. Go to bed exhausted. If you are not going to bed exhausted, you're doing it wrong. If you're not going to bed exhausted, from loving your family and your wife, you're doing it wrong. So I want to call you to that. Sacrifice is part of the deal. So often husbands will dedicate their lives to loving their neighbor as themselves and then give the leftovers to their wives. May it not so be in this church. Right? Two great commandments. God leaves with us. Love God with everything you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The husbands, I think we're quite guilty of not loving our wife as our neighbor. Your wife is your neighbor. Your wife is a Christian. Do unto her that you would do unto all of the other Christians, except for the married stuff that stays with her. You gotta sacrifice. Men, your most important mission is to give your home that which you have. God has been placed in your home for a reason. God gave you this wife to love and to cherish so you're to sacrifice for her. Yeah, you're going to need a break and you're going to need to take a nap because life is rough. Whatever. You're a man. You're tough. You can figure it out. All that you have is to be given to the mission that God has put in your home. God created the world. 
And then he created Adam. And he said, Adam, go tend this garden. Adam was working from the minute he was created. Work is not sinful. Work is good. Amen? He, he was tending that garden since the minute he was created. And then God gave him a helpmate. And there it was, Adam's mission. To tend a garden, to work a job, to provide and protect and nourish his wife. All right. I'm going to transition to a close here. Let's not just be about it or talk about it, right? Let's, sorry, let's not just talk about it. Let's be about it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Now, this is just a summary of what these verses teach. And so I want you to come to church week after week after week, really writing it down, putting it on your phone, remembering how you're going to leave here and do it differently. Because I'm going to stand here as a humble sinner who has been given the blessing of an amazing and patient wife, as some of you already know, And God has done a tremendous work in our lives because of one thing. We put the gospel in the center. Not one another. The gospel goes in the center. All right? Your home will begin to look different when you believe in what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the point. Listen, we had this marriage thing this past Friday. I think we had like 12 couples. I don't know. There's 27 people here. And it was fantastic. If you keep skipping those, you're wrong, right? Because they're great. And what we learned was, after the Pictionary game, which was really fun, uh, we also learned that we should have a Pictionary tournament at our church, because that would be cool, too. What the whole reason of that marriage, was to, that marriage event was to say, you will not act differently than you believe. That's just a fact. Believe the gospel is good, believe it's true, and your life will look different. We are complex beings. I will never put you in this church and say, go ahead and do it different, just do it. Just stop doing that and start doing that. That hasn't helped anybody, ever. It's, it's, too more, it's too complex than that. We have a mind that thinks and a heart that feels and emotions that we don't understand. And so what the, what's supposed to drive all of your actions in your home is the belief that you have about yourself, about God, about your spouse, about your children. That's what you invest in. That's what you put in the center. And the actions, you will see, will eventually take care of themselves. But the belief drives the actions, all right? In his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. And then now he offers you this spirit so you can walk away from sin and pursue the things of God. So I'm gonna say what I said in the beginning. I'm gonna add one more line to it. The four truths about the gospel. In his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. He was without sin. And now he offers you this spirit so you can walk away from sin and pursue the things of God. Does your home see this in your life? Can they witness it? In his death, Jesus paid for the sins of the world, satisfying God's wrath towards you, the sinner, allowing you to walk away free from every stain of sin, no longer enslaved by sin. Do those in your home see how this is working itself out in your life? In his resurrection, he proved to be the one and only savior of the world. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. He has defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And now he gives you eternal life. No longer. This means no longer are we afraid of what may come in this life because we have been assured that we will be raised on the last day. Does this take center stage in your home? Number four, in his ascension, when he went up into heaven, he's at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you, the Christian, each and every second of the day. Every minute of the day, Jesus is speaking on your behalf, reminding the Father of your faith and your commitment to him, even when you fall short once again. It's a powerful truth. Do you believe that? You are no longer a sinful wretch in the eyes 
of God. Can your family see how that truth is changing your actions?